Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. So you see, my point is this. This is the distinction between a genuine Christian, a real Christian, and a person who is merely a nominal Christian. It's the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. And of course, because the Spirit of God is present in your life, He is the Holy Spirit, your life's going to change. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, in a message titled, Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Paul now brings us to the particular work of the Holy Spirit. So the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, and we read here that the Spirit has sealed us. Verse 13, in whom also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. And so the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice Paul refers to the Holy Spirit here as the Holy Spirit of promise or the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, Why does he do that? Well, he does that because the Holy Spirit was the special promise that God had given through the prophets, the promise that would be connected to the coming of the Messiah and the work of the Messiah. So back, back in the Old Testament, you might notice if you read through your Bible, you will find that that God would uh, occasionally pour his spirit upon individuals. He would raise them up and they, they would you know, accomplish the things that he had for them. But these outpourings of the spirit were few and far between. They were very selective. So not everybody in that Old Testament period of time experienced a real work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This was something, though, that God said would be the the feature of this new covenant that he would establish. He promised to send his Holy Spirit. He promised that through the Messiah and, and within the context of this new covenant, every person who believed would have a personal, dynamic experience with the Spirit of God. Now, Jesus said more about this as well. He, in speaking to his disciples, as he was telling them that he was going to leave, he was going to return to the Father, they were discouraged, as you could understand. And they were tempted to depression. And Jesus said to them, no, you know, don't be discouraged. You don't understand. He said, it's actually to your benefit that I go away. He said, if I don't go, the Spirit will not come. But if I leave, then I will send him to you. And he spoke of the Holy Spirit coming as a comforter or a helper. And he actually would come as the replacement for Jesus. Jesus said, the Father's going to send you another comforter. 
And the word there, another, means another of the same kind. So really, the Holy Spirit is for us today what Jesus was to the disciples back when he walked the earth. Have you ever had that desire to have maybe lived back in the time of Christ? Have you ever had that wish that you could have been there and you could have you know, heard the voice of Jesus and seen him and walked with him and seen those miracles? Oh, how great that would be, we think. And it would have been great. But Jesus said, there's something better. And the better thing is the coming of the Holy Spirit because the thing with the Holy Spirit is that he can bring Jesus to each and every Christian simultaneously. Billions of people that have believed in Christ are able to experience God in the full sense, experience Christ in a full sense simultaneously, even though we're, we're you know, separated by uh, great distances and time and so forth, but we can all experience the same Christ through the person of the Spirit. And so this is part of the blessing that would come through this promise that God made. So he's the Holy Spirit of promise or the promised Holy Spirit. But Paul tells us that we have been sealed with this Holy Spirit of promise. What does it mean to be sealed? Well, a seal signified two things. Number one, it signified ownership, and secondly, security. God has sealed us with his spirit, which means God has stamped us uh, with his image as his possession. He owns us. We belong to the Lord. In that time, in, in Paul's day, a seal would be placed upon an object uh, that a person would purchase or you know, perhaps they were transporting it or something. And, and the seal indicated ownership, who's it belonged to. And so with us, this is what God is saying. When, when Paul says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, God has put his stamp of ownership on us. We belong to him. You belong to the Lord. You're his. Now, remember, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he says, since that is the case, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. He says, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which belong to him. See, we belong to the Lord. He purchased us. He redeemed us. And he puts his stamp of ownership on us through the spirit. But there's also the addition of security. Because God owns us, he's put his stamp of ownership on us, and that then secures us as his property. When something was uh, sealed by the Roman seal, it meant you don't touch this. You don't, you don't tamper with this. And so we've been sealed by the Spirit. We belong to God, and the fact that we are his possession also gives us security. You can't tamper with God's possession. We're under his divine protection. And so we have this sealing. But then Paul says, thirdly, that the sealing is the guarantee of our inheritance. 
So it's the presence of the Spirit, and specifically the sealing of the Spirit. This is what has guaranteed to us our inheritance. Now, the Greek word that's used here, translated guarantee, is the Greek word erebon. John Stott in his Ephesians commentary, he said, but in ancient commercial transactions, this word signified a first installment, deposit, down payment, pledge, that pays a part of the purchase price in advance and so secures a legal claim to the article in question or makes a contract valid. In this case, the guarantee is not something separate from what it guarantees, but actually the first portion of it. And then he says, an engagement ring uh, promises marriage but is not itself a part of the marriage. A deposit on a house or in a lease purchase agreement, however, is more than a guarantee of, of payment. It is itself the first installment of the purchase price. So it is with the Holy Spirit. In giving him to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it. That's beautiful. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. The fact that God has sealed us with the Spirit guarantees that we are going to enter into the inheritance, and he's already allowed us to enter into it partially. So we, we currently have a partial experience of what we will have a full experience of in the future. And as I read here from the ESV today, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Or you could read it, I think what it's really saying here is until we acquire full possession of it. See, we already possess it. That's what Paul is saying. And the fact that we possess it now indicates that we will possess it in its fullest sense in the future. So this sealing of the Spirit, God's intention here, partially at least, is to let us know that we belong to him and that nothing can alter that. That he has saved us and he sealed us and he's going to bring us into everything that he's intended for us and nothing is going to stop that from happening. We've been sealed by the Spirit. Over in the, the fourth chapter, the 30th verse, Paul talks about the possibility of us as Christians grieving the Spirit. And he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you have been sealed until the day of redemption. So you see, it's clear that the sealing is something that is going to take us through to a complete and a total experience of our inheritance. And I emphasize that because there is the idea that some hold to that you can have salvation temporarily, but you can lose it somewhere in the process. Paul doesn't believe that. He doesn't teach that. He says that we're sealed the moment we believe. Now, that brings us to our second main point here. The truth of the sealing of the Holy Spirit is both positional truth and practical truth. And what do I mean by those two things? 
Well, positional truth refers to the things that are true uh, from God's perspective, whether we experience them ourselves personally or not. For example, going back in the first portion of Ephesians here, you remember we're told there that we have been seated in the heavenly places. We have already been seated in the heavenly places. Now, we're not there yet though, right? But as far as God is concerned, we're there. So that's a positional truth. We're there positionally. Even though we haven't arrived there practically, we're there positionally. So it's as good as done from God's point of view. And so with the sealing, God seals us with his spirit and he seals us the moment we put our faith in Jesus, whether we experience it or not. So it's not so much something that we're, we're depending on having had an experience in order to know whether or not it's true, but it's something we know is true because God declared it to be so. So this is like an objective truth. It's an objective truth because it's a truth based upon something God has declared rather than a subjective truth necessarily, which is based upon something that I've experienced. So the moment you believe in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You might not necessarily have an experience that you know, lets you know that that sealing has taken place, at least not right at that second, but it's happened nevertheless. But then, of course, there is also the practical truth here because when a person's sealed with the Holy Spirit, this is the first step, if you will, of, of many other things that follow along with that. So we're sealed with the Spirit of God. We're regenerated by the Spirit of God. That you know, probably happens simultaneously. We are filled with the Spirit or, or we're indwelt with the Spirit. Then we're filled with the Spirit. Then we have what we call a baptism of the Spirit, which some see as distinct from filling. Some see as uh, identical. But there are different experiences that we have with the Spirit. But you see, this is what makes a person a Christian, the Spirit of God. There are many people that would call themselves Christians who do not have the Spirit of Christ in them. They're, they're not indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us if, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But there are many people who would refer to themselves as Christians, but they're they, they know nothing of this experience of the Spirit. In actuality, they are what we would call nominal Christians. They're Christians in word only, or they're Christians in culture, or they're Christians because that's the background that they grew up with. That's the tradition that they have. And they're Christians because they're not Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or atheists. So you see, my point is this. This is the distinction between a genuine Christian, a real Christian, and a person who is merely a nominal Christian, it's the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. And of course, because the Spirit of God is present in your life, He is the Holy Spirit, your life's going to change. And we read about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then we read about the empowering of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. 
where Jesus said, the spirit will come upon you and he will give you power to be witnesses to me. So you see, it's both positional truth and it's a practical truth. But whether or not we've had the experiential part of it uh, initially, the moment we believe in Jesus, we're sealed by the Spirit of God. We, we become his and he puts his mark upon us. And he says, this is my property. Don't touch it. Keep your hands off of it. It belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. We belong to him. He sealed us with his Spirit. Now, the sealing of the Spirit, thirdly, is the guarantee of heaven. That's what Paul is saying here. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, there's a difference of opinion among Christians when it comes, as I said, to this idea of whether or not one can lose their salvation. We have to find the truth in the scripture. And the scripture, although there are a, a very small number of passages that would seem to imply that losing your salvation might be possible, I believe that every one of those passages can be interpreted in another way without doing any injustice to the text whatsoever. But there are numerous passages that state unequivocally that your salvation is absolutely secure. There's no other possibility when it comes to interpretation. You can't interpret them any, way, any other way. So as we go to the scripture and, and as we look at what the scripture says, to me, there's no way around these statements. And not just the, the 13th and the 14th verse here, but as we even go backwards in the text, as we considered a while back, again, think with me about some of these things. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Now remember, this is what God has chosen us to, meaning he's going to get us there. If you were not going to be holy and blameless before him, it's this simple. You would not have been chosen. The ones that are chosen get to where God chooses them to be. We get to that place of being holy and blameless before him. Remember, we're accepted in the beloved. You can't improve on your salvation. You're in Christ. You can't get out of Christ. You're in Christ. Now, sometimes people say, oh, but you know, when you talk about people not losing their salvation, you're just telling people go out and do whatever they want and don't worry about it. They're going to get to heaven in the end. No, I'm not saying that at all. Because if a person thinks that not losing your salvation means go live like the devil and get to heaven in the end, that person's deceived. That's not, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there's, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, like I said earlier. So there's going to be a growth and a development, a sanctification that's taking place. But we need to know, we need to have that security. You know, if I get up in the morning and I'm not sure if I'm saved, how well do you think I'm gonna do serving God throughout the day? If I can't figure out whether or not I'm saved, how am I gonna help anybody else to get saved? So you see, we've got to have that security. God wants us to have that security. And so he gives us it right here in his word, these clear statements. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. 
And so for me, it's, it's these verses along with many others that convinced me many years ago of the doctrine of the security of the believer. And so I make no apologies for holding to this view. I believe it's the, it's the correct biblical view. John 10, I've quoted John 10 many times before. Jesus said, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them from my father's hand and I and my father are one. There's no way around that. Thank God. I'm so glad. Aren't you glad that Jesus... Aren't you, aren't you glad that it's the job of Jesus to keep you till eternity? Man, if it was our own job, oh, how, how, how pathetic that would be. But God keeps us. He sealed us with his spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise. So in conclusion, how does the sealing of the Holy Spirit come about? How can one be sure they have an inheritance in heaven? Look with me once again at verse 13. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed. It's all through belief. It's all through that simple avenue that God has established of faith. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the simple prescription for salvation. And that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. He says, you heard the gospel, you heard the good news of your salvation, you believed it, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But now listen, as you know, and as we said before, we have to clarify what belief is. It's not just simply an intellectual assent to something. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, well, yeah, sure. I guess I believe Jesus lived. I guess he was a historical figure. Maybe he was the son of God too. That's not biblical belief. Biblical belief implies a receiving of Christ into our lives as the Lord. We're receiving him as the Lord, the authority. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, Jesus, you're now Lord. I'm giving him my life. That's the idea behind the biblical picture of belief. Just in the best way you know how. You just, Lord, I, here I am. I'm believing in you. And as that takes place, that, that moment in the heart, the Spirit of God is placed as God's seal upon you. You become his. And so today, if you haven't, you don't know that you've been sealed with the Spirit, if you haven't had the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you're God's child, maybe like Bill that I talked about earlier, maybe, you, maybe you've been in, uh, in church most of your life, or all of your life for that matter. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian. You know, something I've noticed, though, a lot of times when, when people are nominal Christians, they usually refer to themselves by their denomination. Say, are you a Christian? No, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> are you a Christian? No, I'm an I'm a Episcopalian. Are you a Christian? No, I'm a Catholic. Well, of course, you can be a Baptist and be an Episcopalian and be a Catholic and be a Christian, but you can also be all those things and not be a Christian. So make sure you're a Christian. Make sure you've received Christ. Make sure you've believed in him and 
don't rest in that denominational connection, but only rest in the vital, real connection to the true and the living God. For the month of October, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. Our identity as a Christian is defined by who God says we are, and our identity in Christ connects us to God. But pornography attempts to unglue our identity from God and from others. It skews and distorts true manhood and true womanhood, enslaving millions. So in his book, The Death of Porn, Ray Ortland reminds us of the royal identity of men and women and the practical ways the bondage of pornography can be broken. If you want to be equipped to face the slavery of pornography in your life or the life of others, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.